Welcome back to Athens' favorite history podcast, Is This Too Niche? I'm Jada. And I'm Zoe. And we're your hosts. Today, we're going to be talking about something that I have been so excited to talk about for the longest time. We're talking about historical art heists. Yes. Give us a round of applause for that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit of like historical true crime. It's Jada's specialty. Personally, I personally I've, I've not gotten too far into the depths of true crime but i did used to watch buzzfeed unsolved quite a lot oh i love buzzfeed unsolved um i was also the first podcast i was on was a true crime podcast oh yeah so Before, it's called monsters and demons oh that's pretty cool and i was on one episode <laughs> it was great yeah <laughs> so since we're both into art and jada's into true crime we thought we would kind of go back to our roots and do it like a co-hosted episode where we go back and forth and talk instead of doing like a Jada Corner. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to try to do like a chronological order of different heists that have happened. So I'm going to try to make this as detailed as I can, give you the whole picture of what happened in these different situations of heists. I want you to feel like you were there being (laughs) lowered into a museum on a grappling hook like Ocean's Eleven. I don't really know if that happened in Ocean's Eleven. I don't remember. <laughs> but you get the point. Like, I want you to feel like you're heisting this art, you know? Yeah, yeah. One day. One day. Yeah, and I have a really fun Q&A for this episode. So oh, do you? stay tuned. I'll ask it at the end. I totally forgot that you did And I really, really want to hear everyone's answers, so don't ignore it. Answer the Q&A. Yeah. It's a threat. Okay. Yeah, we didn't get any responses from our last one. Oh, my so. God. You guys are such fake fans. Literally. So, I'm going to be starting with the first art heist ever, and this took place way back in 1473. Jada and I actually learned a little bit about this Mm -hmm. in our Renaissance art history class, Northern Renaissance specifically. So, back in the 1470s, a Netherlandish artist named Hans Memling was commissioned by a Florentine to make him an altarpiece. This Florentine was named Angelo Tani, and he was the director of the Bruges branch of the Medici Bank. What this means is that he had the big bucks, and he had just recently founded a chapel in Florence, and he wanted a grand altarpiece to put on display there. So, he went to Memling, and Memling obliged and created an altarpiece which featured the last judgment the altarpiece was loaded onto a ship and sent off to florence that is until the vessel that it was on ran into another vessel which was captained by a man named paul benek and it's important to note that during this time there was a war called the anglo hanseatic war and this paul guy sailed for the hanseatic league so while the ship that the altarpiece was on was registered under a Florentine named Tommaso Portinari, who was also an important patron of the arts that we've talked about, mm-hmm. the ship technically belonged to England. So therefore, Paul, as part of the Hanseatic League, could capture the ship with the altarpiece on it because it was English and take the altarpiece as a spoil of war. The issue was brought to the papal court and it was determined to be a legitimate act of war. And to this day, the altarpiece is in Poland not Florence, where it's supposed to be, and the Florentines are still mad about that to this day. (laughs) So, not quite as exciting, not quite as adrenaline-inducing. I think the further we get into it, the more, like, details we have. Yeah, but I'm going to hand it over to Jada, because she has our next heisted artwork. Yes, and also in honor of our Northern Renaissance class trending, also... Did you get the idea to do this episode because of that class? I did when when our I professor do. was talking about the Ghent altarpiece. Yeah, claps for the Ghent altarpiece. Mm-hmm. Funny you say that because that is our next piece. 
Before we get into it, I'll give you some background on the piece. It was painted in 1432 by Hubert Van Eyck and his brother Jan Van Eyck. The altarpiece measures 14.5 by 11.5 feet and weighed more than two tons. So this thing was massive. So let's get art heisting. First time the Ghent altarpiece had been threatened was in 1566, a group of Protestant Reformers called the Calvinist attempted to steal and burn it during a wave of iconoclasm. And the guards were like, absolutely not, and hid the, the piece. Then in 1794, Napoleon's invading troops stole four of the panels, which ended up being on display at the Louvre. Then after Napoleon was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, Louis XVIII was restored to the throne, and as a thank you to Ghent, who sheltered him during the war, he returned the piece Napoleon had taken. But the Ghent altarpiece cannot catch a break, because in 1816, only a year after they had been returned, a vicar at the Ghent Cathedral stole the wing panels for an art dealer, and the two wing panels ended up in the Berlin Museum. Then, in 1919, as a condition of the Treaty of Versailles, the panels were all returned back to Ghent. You think I'm done? <laughs> I most certainly am not. In 1934, the lower left panel was stolen for ransom, but the perpetrators later returned the painting of St. John the Baptist that was on the back of the panel, but the panel to this day has never been returned. Mystery. <laughs> yeah. Leave the painting alone, for God's sake. Like, there are other paintings. <laughs> During World War II, it is speculated that Hitler believed that the Ghent altarpiece was a coded map to lost Christian relics that would provide supernatural powers to those who possessed them. What? Okay, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> like, okay. what? And while the Ghent altarpiece was being sent to the Vatican for safekeeping, Hitler's forces located the altarpiece, stole it, and hid it in a salt mine with other stolen artworks. Luckily, the art piece was saved from destruction by the Monuments Men, who were a U.S. Army force specifically tasked with saving art looted by Nazis. Believe it or not, that was not even all the instances that the Ghent altarpiece had been threatened. I don't know what drugs Jan and Hubert put on to this, but I don't know on any part of it. Yeah, they just have people keep coming back for more. Yeah, literally. And today the Ghent altarpiece is located at St. Bavis Cathedral in Ghent, Belgium. And part of the lower left panel has still never been recovered. And to this day, a Ghent agent is assigned to its case. Wow. Yeah. Kind of crazy. Sticking to me this time. Because yep. the next chronological art heist I'm going to talk about is unarguably the most notorious art heist of them all. I'm talking about the Mona Lisa. Today we are going to look at it from an outside point of view because it really is super interesting how the case was treated more as a missing persons case rather than a typical art heist. Also, a brief trigger warning for this part of the episode, there will be mentions of Picasso. Let's dive right in. On Sunday, August 20th, 1911, near closing time at the Louvre, three ha Italian handymen were about to commit the most famous heist. The three men, one of which who had worked at the Louvre, snuck into the art supply closet and spent the night. Night at the museum? On the morning of Monday, August 21st, the Louvre had been closed and the three men slipped out of the closet and lifted the 200 pounds of painting frame and protective glass off the wall. They then stripped the frame and case and they covered the wooden canvas with a blanket and ran out the Louvre. And at 7.47 a.m., they boarded a train out of the city. 
My first question for them is, why so late in the morning? How long did they just, like, sit there and kill time? Yeah. Or, like, did they actually sit in the closet until 7 in the morning? They were just hanging out. <laughs> they were really confident. <laughs> okay. It was, I just they were just having a little so sleepover. Odd. Like, sh- wouldn't you do it, in, like, during the night? Like, uh, Maybe they were just having such a fun time that they, like, forgot they were going to hike. <laughs> they were, they were, like, I don't know prank calling like please please i I don't know but they were just they were just having a little boys night and then they the sun came up and they were like oh yeah that's what we were here for (laughs) good grief okay well i guess that that's a possibility just a little backstory before we continue the louvre encouraged amateur painters and allowed them to copy their master's work and store their easels in paint boxes in their numerous nooks and closets in the wall paneling There was one stipulation, no canvas could be the same size as the original. This was an ineffective way to prevent forgery because people would take advantage of having access to the original piece in order to make copies. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. And literally the same day, a new museum policy had just been created in an effort to adapt to modern times. They were going to put the most valuable paintings into three-dimensional protective frames because just a few years before, one of Vanga's paintings had been slashed and it's framed, specifically the painting titled The Sistine Chapel, if you're interested. Many people opposed this new plan, including one artist, Louis Barode. He believed that a glass box desecrated the communion between art and art lover. Barode at the time had been copying the Mona Lisa. And on Tuesday, August 22nd, 1911, 24 hours after the heist happened, Barode returned to the Louvre that day. He was actually going to express his displeasure of the new glass protective cases. His idea was to paint a man shaving in the new glass that protected the Mona Lisa, or a young girl using the glass as a mirror to do her hair. That would have gone so hard. Like, oh, yeah. that painting with the shaving? Yeah. I'm actually so mad that it doesn't exist. I know. I know. On the Tuesday morning, as Barode walked up to the Mona Lisa, disaster struck. Her place on the wall was empty. All that remained were four iron hooks in a rectangular shape several shades deeper than its surrounding area. Why why did it take so long for people to notice? Just you wait. (laughs) She had hung in the Louvre since Napoleon was exiled to St. Helena, and now she was gone. In this moment, Barreau went to find a guard and ask of her whereabouts, and the guard on duty responded with, Being photographed, I suppose. So there was no immediate concerns yet. The paintings were simply hung on hooks, so literally anyone could take them down and carry them off. <laughs> Good idea, guys. Yeah. Bro left the Louvre and returned around 11 o'clock, and the Mona Lisa still had not been returned, and he confronted the guard on duty again, who sauntered off to ask when the Mona Lisa would be returned, and of course he was met with vacant stares. No one knew where the Mona Lisa was, and the guard was sent on a wild goose chase looking for her. He literally ran around the whole Louvre. <laughs> Looking for this That's intense. He's getting his steps in. (laughs) He really is. At one o'clock, Louis Lapine, prefect of the Seine, arrived at the museum with an army of gendarmes. Every exit closed behind him. No one was allowed to enter or exit the Louvre at this time, and 60 officers fanned out to look for the missing painting. Time was of the essence for them because unless they found the Mona Lisa in a few hours, it would become a national scandal, and the painting had been unaccounted for from the Sunday after close all the way to 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning. I love that story, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Parents, me doing this is literally just me playing a game of, like, word association. Yeah. That's, yeah. (laughs) 
This is so dumb. France was completely sealed at this point. No one was allowed in or out without a thorough search. And soon the police made their first discovery. Two frames were pushed into a corner of a service stairway. One was a 3D glass box. The other was antique carved wood that had the label of the Mona Lisa, both of which were intact, the wood undamaged and the glass unbroken. It was a clean heist, except for a single perfect fingerprint extracted from the frames. What? <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> there were a lot of unknowns in this case. They didn't know who did it, how they did it, exactly when they did it, and even why they did it. They actually believed that the perpetrator would return with a forgery of the painting and they'd be able to catch them or even hold the Mona Lisa hostage for ransom. Dun dun dun! They reenacted the crime using people that were unfamiliar with the Louvre and longtime employees in order to get a frame of reference for how long it would take to commit an act like this. I want to be hired as a person oh my God. who is like reenacting a heist. Mm hmm. Me too. And during this, they found that someone skilled in museum work had to have been the culprit. They came to the conclusion that the crime had been planned with precision and executed with skill. The thief or thieves had understood the internal operations of the Louvre, studied the layout of the museum, and laid out a clear strategy. Obviously, suspicion pointed to an inside job. So every single person who had access to the Mona Lisa would be fingerprinted and interrogated. With the information they learned from these interrogations, they began the hunt for a young German man whose infatuation with the Mona Lisa may have turned into an obsession. Weird. Yeah. So this crime had turned into one of a romance with the Mona Lisa. And oddly enough, this gave many people some relief at the possibility that the Mona Lisa was being loved by whoever took her. Mm, no okay. thanks. <laughs> okay. Common trend in this, in our episodes, is that men need therapy. Mm -hmm. Every single time. A museum plumber named Salve mentioned that the stairway where the frames were found had been missing a doorknob. And on Monday morning, Salve had found a worker waiting at the foot of the stairs for someone to open the door so that no one else would be stuck. They later found the missing doorknob in the gardens behind the Louvre suspicious that is suspicious and i know that the people who i'm referring to in a second are probably not listening to this episode but it reminds me of the time that my friends accidentally stole my doorknob what? from my house and it came all around the town with us wait accidentally it, yeah we discovered that we had stolen it about wait what? five hours later at a waffle house oh my God. it's a really long story i'll tell you it off off the record later accidentally really funny what did you like twist the knob and it came off and you were just the doorknob disappeared and we were stuck inside the house and we were like well we have places to be so and then um like five hours later my friend was like your doorknob's in my tote bag <laughs> back to you <laughs> got a little bit got a little bit off track there south had not reported the missing doorknob until way later and he wasn't giving them any straight answers about who this employee was and when he did, all his answers were vague. Basically, the only information they got from him is that the man was wearing a white employee smock. Hmm. Inside job. <laughs> and this brass doorknob raised many more questions because why would the person discard the doorknob in a place that would be so easily found? When the Seine River was so close by, he yeah. just tossed it in, whatever. 
the government actually offered what equates to about a hundred thousand U.S. dollars for the return of the Mona Lisa. There were even many newsrooms that offered double that and anonymity. I don't know why it's so hard for me. I can say anonymous. Anyways, the Mona Lisa was painted on a white Lombardi poplar wood panel that was 21 by 31 inches. So it wasn't like it was easy to sneak sneak her out of the Louvre, even without the frames. Mm -hmm. She couldn't be just rolled up. Yeah. And the security of the Louvre had been questionable, at least for a long time, as we mentioned before. And many times it had been brought up. Once in the past, a reporter had spent the night in a sarcophagus to expose the lack of security. So one possible motive could have been to bring bring up this problem itself. Yeah. Love that for him. At this point in time, they knew that the theft was premeditated and the thief on August 20th, the Sunday night before, had spent the night in the Louvre. And the Mona Lisa was now the most wanted woman in the world. A week after the crime on August 29th, the Louvre opened its doors up to the public for the first time and thousands of grieving Parisians lined up to view the blank space where the Mona Lisa was (laughs) meant to be. That's really funny. I just think that's so funny. Yeah. A girl. (laughs) The prime suspects were the poet Yame Apollinaire and painter Pablo Picasso. Boo. (laughs) The Paris police suspected that they were ringleaders of an international gang of art thieves. And then this theory led absolutely nowhere. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. They had a lot of knowledge, but nevertheless, the crime went cold and Paris was heartbroken. And remember our three handymen? Well, their ringleader, Vincenzo Perugia, stashed the Mona Lisa in a false bottom of a trunk in his Paris boarding house without making any attempts to sell it. Because I'm sure he wasn't expecting the amount of public despair that came from stealing the Mona Lisa. Before the heist, the Mona Lisa wasn't even that famous. It was one of da Vinci's lesser Mm. known pieces. So I'm sure he was like, it's whatever, I'll just take this one. Yeah. (laughs) No. That's pretty funny, because imagine, like... (laughs) after all this like upheaval he just comes out of the i don't know just like tries to pull up to the black market he's like anyone want this and everyone's like be for real be so (laughs) go put that back yeah that's exactly what happened (laughs) after two years perugia made the mistake of attempting to sell the mona lisa to an art dealer in florence but the dealer was suspicious and had the head of an italian art gallery come to take a look at the painting And lo and behold, a stamp on the back confirmed its authenticity. The dealer said, okay, leave it with us and we'll see that you get a reward. Perugia went back home, but half an hour later, to his surprise, the police were at his door. What a surprise. He said later that he was trying to return it to Italy, that he was a patriot and it was stolen by Napoleon, and he was trying to return it to the land of its birth. And so the painting was returned to the Louvre, and Perugia pleaded guilty to stealing it and was sentenced to just eight months in prison. Yeah, that's fine. Not so bad. He'll survive. Yeah, not so bad at all. And that, my friends, is the art heist of the Mona Lisa and what brought her the amount of fame she has today. I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not Louis Burroughd ever finished his little Mona Lisa painting. I would think not, because the security surrounding Mona Lisa was probably insane after this. Poor Louis. Yeah, I was really rooting for him. Yeah, me too. All right, so we're jumping way ahead because I'm sure our heist did happen between 1911 and 1970s, but... They got away with it. Yeah, I'm just going to talk about a very interesting one. 
So, in 1972, Canada's biggest art heist was pulled off, and it has been referred to as the Skylight Caper, and I'm really excited to talk about it. I'm excited to hear it. September 4th, 1972. Three thieves break into the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, and this is how it happened. Whoa. Just after midnight, one of the thieves is wearing boots that have picks on the bottom of them. He climbs a tree and lowers a ladder down to his compatriots. Wait, did he use the picks to climb the tree? I think so, yeah. Or I think that at least they, like, made an imprint in the tree, so, like, people were like, well, one of them has, you know. We should try that later. <laughs> Catch us on College Green climbing <laughs> up trees. <laughs> That's so cool. The three of the thieves made their way over to a skylight leading to the second floor of the museum. Since the roof of the museum had been undergoing construction, no alarms went off when they broke in. They lowered themselves through the skylight using a rope, which is like, I don't know, I think that's kind of badass because that's kind of like a movie trope when they're doing art heist, they like lower themselves through the... I mean, the... I feel like it's there's a reason that it's a trope. Though. Yeah, it's probably this. Yeah. So around 1.30 a.m., they encountered a guard. In order to threaten the guard, they shot one shotgun, which alerted two other guards. The three thieves tied up the three guards and left one of the thieves to watch over them. The other two collected the artworks that they wanted. Their original plan was to use an elaborate pulley system to lift the artworks up out of the skylight, but they decided to use the museum's loading dock instead. As they loaded their stolen goods into one of the museum's vans, one of the thieves accidentally set off an alarm. So they grabbed what they could, which was 18 paintings and 39 figurines and pieces of jewelry, and they made a break for it. Only two of the stolen objects have been returned to this day. About an hour after the thieves left, the guards were able to free themselves and contact the police. Some notable names that they stole included Delacroix, a Rembrandt, and a Rubens. Man, Rembrandt is gonna get I dashed. know. Rembrandt is... You're gonna see lots of people have it out for him. I have it out for him. Because, oh, really? Yeah, he invented... Or he didn't invent, but he uses glazing, and I just had to do a whole painting <laughs> with glazing. It was the worst thing ever. Okay should not be a thing valid actually it should it's really helpful but not for a whole painting yeah bad so the aftermath at first the heists went pretty unnoticed by some news outlets because the headlines from this particular weekend were packed for one the canadian hockey team lost to the soviet union this weekend which i'm sure was a huge deal and at the same time there was a hostage situation unfolding at the munich olympics so the art heist just kind of went under the radar wasn't it wasn't <laughs> no big deal it wasn't top priority they got a lot. Yeah. In the early stages of the... Wait, what? What? Because the, the there was, like, a huge heist, but, like, them losing the hockey I game know. is more well, important. Well, because, like, the Cold War, I don't know. Like, they just did not care that much. The hockey game. Yeah. In the early stages of this investigation, five students were surveilled by the police for about two weeks until this lead was abandoned. I just thought that was very, like, secret history of them, if you've ever read that book. Okay, well, you need to read it. But. I know, I want to read that. Then, investigators considered the possibility of an inside job. How did the thieves know that the alarms had been deactivated? But interviews with the staff led nowhere. A few days after the crime, the museum received a phone call telling them to send someone to a payphone. At this payphone, they found a cigarette box laying on the ground containing one of the stolen pendants from the, from the objects that were stolen communication with this informant continued but led nowhere in october of 1972 a package was received by the museum containing photographs of the stolen paintings and demanding half a million dollars <laughs> negotiations proceeded but again led nowhere since the summer of 1973 no more ransom or any attempts to contact the museum with any information about the painting have surfaced and only two of the stolen objects have been recovered all because they lost a hockey game <laughs> pretty much yeah what yeah 
That is insane. Mm-hmm. So literally us in 50 years, we're getting away with it. That's good shit right yeah. there. I mean, I'm like, they deserve it at this point. With I know. It's work. like, you should have just paid that half a million dollars and gotten your stuff back. Come on. Yeah. Like, no, keep it. Like, I would want to keep it too. Yeah. Yeah. So next up, we're going across the pond to <laughs> uh, Ireland and we're going to talk about some this is really interesting it's really cool and it took place the same year well around the same between the same years that the canada art heist did so let's get into it over in the uk developments between the ira which were the irish revolutionaries and britain culminated in several art heists orchestrated by a woman named rose dugdale rose who is 79 today was an English heiress who became involved with the IRA after the events of Bloody Sunday. If you're unfamiliar, it took place in 1972 when British soldiers shot 26 unarmed civilians during a protest in Derry, Northern Ireland. Stream Derry Girls. <laughs> Anyways, Rose Dugdale was a member of the IRA, and art theft was just one of her specialties. She was also a bomber. Oh. Um, anyways, at the beginning of her career, she would steal her family's paintings and sell them to raise funds for the IRA, which is really slay, honestly. Mm-hmm. She was arrested for this, which served a short sentence, and in 1974, she stole the guitar player by Vermeer from the Kenwood house. She left a ransom note instructing the British to transfer two IRA members from a British prison to one in Northern Ireland, where I guess they just would have been treated better was the motive. And... The painting was recovered from a cemetery from an anonymous tip-off. Two months later, Dugdale was part of an IRA gang that broke into a, the Rustborough house, which was a home owned by a conservative member of parliament. The IRA tied up the owner and stole 19 works from his home, including Vermeer's, Rubens, and Goya's. And all of these have been recovered from a home that Dugdale was renting. She served nine years for this. Wow. She's still kicking it today. <laughs> and honestly, like... She's cool. I'm sorry. When, no, when does her... Women are allowed to do when crimes. When does it end? When does her... What's it called? When When is she getting out of... No, she No, she, she did. She served nine oh, years. Let's have her on the podcast. Yeah. Hey, hey, Rose. Hey. Yeah. Hey. Hello. If you're listening, love, we'd love to have you. We'd love to. Oh, she's running now. Bloody, she's coming. Yeah, it would be bloody S- brilliant. Summon her. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, uh, those are my two. I have some more coming up, but I'm going to pass it back to Jada. Thanks, Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> the next art heist is a short one, but nonetheless huge. On Christmas of 1985 at the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City, a group of unknown robbers snuck into the museum before dawn and stole 140 small objects, most of which only an inch in size from the Mayan, Aztec, and various other native Mexican communities, two of which were a jade mosaic funerary mask and an obsidian monkey-shaped vase worth over $20 million. The thieves obviously had known what they were looking for because they only took the best objects from each display. The theft was identified as a national tragedy because of the amount of history that was robbed. The museum was vulnerable that day because it was Christmas, obviously. They didn't have many guards on site. Not only that, but the guards on site had reportedly gotten drunk the night, <laughs> that night so you could say they weren't on the top of their game. And alongside that, the museum's alarms were faulty. It took three years to catch the thieves and return the artifacts, and this is when their story unfolded. The people who committed the heist were two amateur university dropouts 
who visited the museum over 50 times before jumping a fence, crawling through the air conditioning duct, and looting the seven display case. Honestly, impressive. Yeah. Good for them. It's the, the classic air conditioning this thing. This is just us, like, condoning yeah. <laughs> our dice. Now onto a less impressive and less interesting one. This is the big one. This is the one that you've all been waiting for. What? How dare you? <laughs> trust me. Trust me. How dare you? Trust me. This is one of the biggest and most unsolved, most talked about art heist in history. I... Mm, debatable. <laughs> trust. This took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which is curated by its namesake, and it resides in Boston. It houses many famous works and priceless artifacts, and to this day, many of its rooms display empty frames, a chilling reminder of the unsolved crime that took place nearly four decades ago, and also a symbol of hope that someday these stolen works of art will be returned. That's actually so cool. Yeah, to their rightful place. Let me set the scene. March 17th, 1990. I love The streets... (laughs) The streets of Boston are carrying on, carrying on late into the night with St. Patrick's Day festivities. In the early morning hours of March 18th, just after midnight, two men disguised as Bostonian police officers pull up to the side of the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. They buzz in, telling the museum guards that they're responding to a disturbance, and the guards figure that this has something to do with the holiday frenzy, so they let the men oh, in. Oh, I know where this is going. You do? Yeah. Okay. The so-called police officers ask the guard who let them in to step away from his desk. He complies, and they take this opportunity to handcuff, t- to handcuff him as well as the other security guard on duty. The criminals bring the guards to the basement of the museum, chain them far away from each other, and duct tape their eyes and mouth. Side note, you'll see in the Instagram pictures that were taken the night of with the guys and their duct tape wrapped around their face. And I just, I know that, like, they had to take those pictures for crime scene evidence, but it's really funny to think of these I guys. I think I like, saw them, yeah. Yeah, it's really funny to think of them, like, sitting down there duct taped for hours, and then oh. when the police show up, they're like, pose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Can we get, can we get a pic? Do you want to be in the B-reel? Like, <laughs> you know? Stop. Okay, back to the, back to the scene of the crime. From there, the thieves followed a path through the museum that has been captured via motion sensor. Using the motion sensor evidence, crime scene analysis were able to retrace every step that the thieves took during the 81 minutes that they were in the museum, which is rather impressive because art art heists usually occur within very short amounts of time. These thieves were very confident that no one had contacted the police, so they took their sweet time. First, they went to the Dutch room. Based on what they took, it seems that the main goal of this heist was to steal works by Rembrandt. As a a matter of fact, they took Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt, which was his only ever painted seascape and also had a hidden self-portrait of himself in it, (laughs) which is a a huge loss for art history. This activity follows a pattern. According to Anthony O'Moore, who is the director of security at the Isabella Stewart Gardner and is known for investigating this heist as well as many others, Every other museum in Massachusetts that had a Rembrandt had also been robbed before this huge heist. Anyways, in the Dutch room, they get two Rembrandts by cutting them out of their frames with box cutters. They also get a third painting, which they think is a Rembrandt, but is actually painted by a student of Rembrandt, and it was misattributed on their part. L plus ratio plus you can't attribute Rembrandts. (laughs) I thought that was really funny when I wrote it out. Then they do the unthinkable. They take a Vermeer, Q 
keep in mind that Vermeer only painted 36 works in his life, so even having one stolen is a huge detriment. Oh, absolutely. So, for some reason, and this has been a point of a lot of confusion in investigations, they took an ancient Chinese goo, which was like a bronze... I don't, I don't know what it was. It just kind of, you know, a strange artifact that wasn't really valuable. So it's really weird as to why they took it. Um, and they as a matter, just liked it, I guess. And as a matter of fact, at one point they bypassed a room full of Chinese artifacts that were much more valuable than the goo, and they left them completely untouched, which was weird. Anyways, we're still in the Dutch room, and they go for yet another Rembrandt, which is an etching of a self-portrait, and it's roughly the size of a postage stamp. Wow. So in order to extract this one from the frame, they spend five minutes unscrewing the screws, which just shows how confident they are. Finally, they go for another Rembrandt self-portrait, taking it off the wall. This painting, however, remained at the museum because when they put it on the ground, they must have thought that they had taken it out of the frame because the backing panel of the painting made it appear empty. As a matter of fact, the next morning when Isabella, the curator of the museum, came to visit, she too thought that the thieves had taken the painting, but then when she picked up the frame, they had actually left it behind mm-hmm. it was kind of amateur work interesting like yeah. get, get it together so one of the thieves stays in the dutch room while the other heads up to the second floor to the short gallery from this gallery he takes five Degas sketches and in this room there's a flag from the napoleonic imperial regiment the thief doesn't take the flag instead he unscrews the bronze eagle from the top of the flag and takes that which is just kind of strange why yeah. why was he on the lookout for that specifically the thief goes back to the Dutch room, and the two thieves go to the blue room to get one final painting, which is a Minet. The activity in this room is strange because it didn't get picked up by the motion sensors, even though records indicate that the sensors were on and functioning at the time. It's strange that they didn't care about the motion sensors in the previous rooms, but it seems that they managed to escape being noticed in this room. They're pro- they probably can just teleport. <laughs> That's probably the explanation. On the way out, the thieves took one copy of the motion sensor's recordings off the printer. Unfortunately for them, the next morning, museum staff could very easily just press print again and once again get all the records of their movements. So for such a complex operation, they made a lot of slip-ups. Yeah, like a lot of meaningful slip-ups. Yeah. At 2.45 a.m., the thieves made it to their car. At 8.15 a.m., the police arrived to find the guards still stuck in the basement. The FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office is still seeking leads to this day, offering high rewards. Throughout the years, many suspects have been investigated, but to no avail. Let's follow some leads. In 2021, a Bostonian jeweler came forward with with information. He told authorities that a man named Bobby Donati, who had been a longtime suspect, came to his office a month after the heist with an eagle-shaped filial. The jeweler recognized it from the heist and sent Bobby away, hoping to keep out of trouble. A month after this interaction, Bobby was killed and his death remains unsolved. Weird. Yeah. In 2022, another possible theory sprung up. It is believed that the death of a man named Jimmy Marks is tied to the heist. Marx was a career criminal with ties to the mafia who was shot while entering his apartment in 1991, another unsolved murder. People near him reported that he had been bragging about possessing the stolen paintings just days before he died. Amateurs. Yeah. This could be a stretch, but he had connections to people who had been investigated, so, you know. I am very interested in this case, and I really hope to see it solved in my lifetime. That would be crazy. Because I'm curious, and I kind of would like the paintings back. Yeah, for all of I'm us. I'm sure things. a lot of us do. Yeah. If you visit the museum today, you'll see empty frames serving placeholders, and you can also hear an audio walkthrough recorded by Anthony Amore 
Amore, Anthony Amore, that takes you step by step through the night of the heist, so you can like follow around. That is so I know, cool. I, I want to do that. I was reading the transcript to get some details. I want to go there now. Girls trip. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. All right, <laughs> back to Jada. Cue the spy music. <laughs> I was gonna. What was playing in my head while I was doing research was. Dooby 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 Yes, thank you. You're welcome. On December 22nd, 2000, it was early in the evening, and three men walked into the Swedish National Museum in Stockholm, carrying pistols and a machine gun. It seemed like a typical art heist. Go in with the guns, leave with the goods. Simple. But no... At the same time, across the town, planted bombs were going off in cars that the robbers placed in order to divert police resources. And when the responders went to leave, they found their tires had been slashed. The three men quickly retrieved the paintings, one self-portrait by Rembrandt, sorry, Rembrandt, and two paintings by Renoir, equating to being worth around 30 to $36 million. But it does not end here. The robbers made their escape via motorboat. It was literally a water chase. What on earth is a storyline? It cannot be real. Yeah, that's crazy. The museum later received a ransom note for $3 million. And the criminals... That's an undershot. Oh, my God. to I what know. it was worth. Come on, guys. I know. Amateurs. No, for real. They're, they were probably... Just imagine them de- debating it. And they're like, how much we ask? I know the amount of money that they probably had to spend on like bombs and in their guns mo- in their mom's and, basement and motorboats or whatever. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Yeah, be so for real. Mm-hmm. The criminals knew how to play the game, but so did the FBI's art crime team. Slay. Robert Whitman, who was a part of the unit, went undercover as a crooked art dealer looking to swap cash for the Rembrandt. Not suspicious at all. <laughs> and after weeks of negotiation, he agreed to meet the thieves in a hotel room in Copenhagen. And that is how they recovered the painting, made a total of 10 arrests for the involvement in the heist. Wow. Freaking crazy. Yeah. Like, that, that's just a, cr- a crazy case. And it, they, like, they, I bet they thought they were so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. It, it's cool. Good for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... The next one that I'm going to be talking about is kind of a two-in-one, and it's they're both pretty funny to talk about, but this art heist relates to a very famous piece of work that I think most of you guys are probably well acquainted with, and it is The Scream by Edward Monk. This piece has quite a lot of heisting history tied to it, and that has to do with the fact that there are four copies of the piece, all with the same title. And because it's one of the most valuable works, like, ever, <laughs> I had my own personal notes on that. That's why it was so sought after. Honestly, like, it's not even one of Monk's best works. Yes. But whatever. Nobody. Either you. So, before I get into it, a side note. To anyone who enjoyed Pop Tropica as a child. Me. There was a world based on the heist of the scream. I don't remember. Really? Yeah. I don't remember if you were supposed to be the detective or if you were supposed to be the criminal. I think you were supposed to be the criminal. But I very vividly remember it. Wait, that's so cool. I know. And so that's what I was thinking about the whole time. If I was... only Pop Tropica would run on my map. <laughs> I tried. It doesn't work. 
And, oh, my God, I would only play the reality show island game. I hated that one. That was the only one I would play. Oh my Actually, God. I, I played, like, all of them. I I also, would, the Magic Treehouse one. I loved Pop Tropical, but I was so bad that I would always have to look up walkthroughs of oh, every yeah. single island. No, I would make my brother do levels and stuff. They were, oh God, it was so much fun. I'm going to play Pop Tropical again. It run on my Mac. So, got a little bit sidetracked there, but... <laughs> The first attempt to take the Scream, well, the first heist of the Scream, took place in 1994 during the Winter Olympics. Two thieves raised a ladder to the window of the National Gallery in Oslo, and they broke in through the window, took a version of the screen and the Scream, and left a note reading, Thousand thanks for the bad security. Oh which my is god. Really funny. A few days after the theft, a Norwegian anti-abortion group came forth saying that they would return the painting if Norway broadcasted their anti-abortion <laughs> film. <laughs> just like, what? They didn't even have the painting. So it turns out that they just took advantage of the robbery to try to push their stupid agenda. That's so weird. Yeah. In 1996, four pieces of the painting, painting's frame were found in a suburb and four men were convicted. One of them being a guy named Paul Anger, who had a history of stealing monks. He served six and a half years in prison but in 1999 he attempted to escape during a field trip only to be caught 12 days later wearing a blonde wig and glasses trying to purchase train tickets <laughs> it's really funny because to this day paul anger has actually gone back and purchased an authentic monk painting or a lithograph mm. legally in an auction wow. which i just i don't know i think that's kind of cute because he was like i've stolen a few monks but maybe it's just, time to commemorate it just for memes you know really I? purchase the real thing you know i oh appreciate it i respect it so in 2004 another version of the scream was stolen from the monk museum in oslo which is again a really funny situation the morning of the highest museum staff opened the museum and around 11 a.m two thieves wearing balaclavas entered the museum and threatened the unarmed guards with pistols one of the thieves held the guard at gunpoint the other cut the painting from the wall they stole two monks one of which being the scream and the other one being the madonna because this heist occurred in broad daylight while the museum was open for visitors many witnesses were present some of them even saying that the thieves were very clumsy they reportedly <laughs> dropped the paintings on the way out the paintings were recovered two years later, and the theories hold that this may have been done as a distraction from the murder of a Norwegian police officer. Honestly, stealing the scream, normalize stealing the scream. <laughs> I think it should be on everyone's bucket list. Yeah. Like, you should just be allowed to steal the scream once in your life. Yeah, like, they give you a... Like, a pass, yeah. Mm -hmm. As long as you return it and let other people try it, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's really Because there's four versions of it, like we have enough to lose it's yeah, fine yeah <laughs> so don't return it we've got one more and i'm gonna pass it over to jada thank you you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> the next art heist main character is viron tomic his story starts at a young age in paris's largest cemetery the cemetery was a maze of tombstones that viron and his friends saw as the ultimate playground he used the cemetery as a parkour course in order to become the quote spider-man of art criminals real and this is exactly what he did at the age of 10 he scaled a 10 feet high wall and climbed through the window of a library in mostar where he stole 200 year old books <laughs> start him young start him young when virian was 16 he was walking down the streets of paris when he saw people lining up outside of the musee de l'orangerie which was a structure that was built to shelter orange trees, but now holds impressionistic 
Impressionist and post-Impressionist art best known for housing Monet's murals of waterlays. <laughs> Viren went inside out of curiosity and was immediately enraptured by Renoir's renderings of happy childhoods. Sad. Viren saw Renoir's paintings as a parallel universe, an enchanted version of the grim Parisian life he had known, and this is where his love for art took root. Viren over time used his skills of parkour and climbing to rob apartments in rich neighborhoods. As he should. Yeah. And he could literally scale multi-story buildings with ease. Like, he earned his title as Spider-Man. That's nuts. Yeah. He, he, to- he talks a lot about how invisible forces compelled him to steal these things. And one night, he had a vivid dream where he stole five paintings from, mu- from a museum. And he took his dream and knew that someday he would do something great. <laughs> <laughs> something that I would do. Yeah. For a long time, Viran had felt indestructible and invulnerable, and in 2010, he was, wa- he was walking near the Seine River when he saw a window at the Musée d'Art Moderne de la Ville de Paris. He glanced up and took note of the cameras on the roof and walked over to a separate window, which was blocked by security cameras. He took out his pocket knife and chipped away at the frame to examine the screws and quickly realized that this window was one that Years earlier, he had disassembled in a different heist. <laughs> so he knew that he could easily break in. Yeah. And a few weeks later, Viren Tomic went into the museum as a visitor. He studied the security measures and the motion detectors that were meant to flicker from green to red when someone passes by, and he realized that several, several of them were stuck on green. Tomic was well prepared for this heist because he knew exactly where the loot would be sold after he obtained it. He had established a steady business relationship with Jean-Michael Corvez, who owned several businesses in France and a small gallery. Tomic over the years sold Corvez around 90,000 euros worth of contraband, and he even provided Tomic with a list of artists that were favored by his clients. And then Corvez offered Tomic $40,000 to acquire the painting Still Life with Candlestick, one of Bernard Liger's famous paintings. So on May 14th of 2010, in the early morning, Viran Tomic walked up to the window he previously visited, carrying a dark cloth that he hung like a curtain to give himself cover. He watched as the guard briefly patrolled the gallery, then walked away, and at 3 a.m., he got to work on the window. Over the span of six nights, he dabbed the window with a paint-stripping acid. He applied a solution to eliminate rust, removed the screws, then filled the holes with the brown modeling clay to cover up his work. Oh my god, he was not messing around. Oh no, and after meticulous work, a few hours before dawn on May 20th, Tomic returned to the window in a hooded sweatshirt with two suction cups (laughs) and silently pulled out the window. He climbed through the window and avoided the working motion detectors, then left and waited 15 minutes on the banks of the Seine to ensure that he didn't set off any silent alarms yeah. he was taking his sweet time yeah he was doing it right Tomic decided he was in the clear and went back inside located Liger's painting and carefully took it out of its frame good and done right it's over right no he had a gut feeling that this was not enough for him he wanted more he saw Matisse's painting passerole and took it off the wall then he was like why would I only take two when I could take three so he grabbed Modigliani's Woman with a Fan. At this time, Burian was in a state of mania. <laughs> was like, 
three is an odd number, so I best take four. So he grabbed Pigeon with Peas by Picasso. Guess he should. And then he went, you know what? What's a better number than four? <laughs> Five. And grabbed Olive Tree near Laestacue by Brock. And he nearly went for a six, Modigliani's Woman with Blue Eyes, but thought to himself that he would regret that choice to take it for the rest of his life. Six was his breaking point. It took Tomek two trips to carry the canvases out of the museum to his parked car minutes away, and finally, he fled the scene. Tomek met with Corvez to give him the liger, and when Corvez arrived at the garage, he was alarmed to see that Tomek stole five paintings instead of the single one he had sent him for. <laughs> and Corvez ended up accepting the liger and one of Modigliani's as consignment, and at this point in time, Tomek was emotionally attached to the paintings <laughs> he had stolen. Real. <laughs> By the end of the heist, it was known around the world, and the stolen works were estimated to have been worth more than $70 million, making it the biggest heist of its kind since 1990. <clears throat> which one took place in 1990? <laughs> Isabella Stewart Gardner. And which one were you saying wasn't the biggest art heist? Isabella Stewart Gardner. That's all I have to say about that. Hmm. And I say, whatever. <laughs> Tomek was pretty positive he had gotten away with it, but he happened to make one flaw. There was a witness. <laughs> oh my god. There was a witness, a single skateboarder that gave the cops a detailed report on a man that looked to be observing the window that had been broken into. After hearing of the witness, Tomek began freaking out and decided to hide the paintings he stole on the underside of chairs in a friend's apartment. This was this friend was called back to two episodes ago, a sex worker. Slave. Six months after the heist, the police received an anonymous tip providing Tomek's name, and on October first, two thousand ten, they eavesdropped on a phone conversation of Tomek basically admitting the crime. Did he learn nothing from Charles and Camilla? Come on, like come on. They then found the security cameras that picked up him studying the security systems in the museum not suspicious at all <laughs> and even from him when he bought the two suction cups glue oh, and a pair of gloves on, <laughs> and funny enough a team of detectives phoned tomek and were sent a voicemail and this is what his voicemail said if you want to buy paintings of work or art or exceptional jewelry do not hesitate to contact me come on he said among the many paintings, there are five that are extremely expensive. Come on. Uh, that's not suspicious at no. all. Although he wasn't immediately res- arrested out of fear of the paintings completely disappearing, in the months before his arrest, he attempted to sell the pieces but was unsuccessful, and he actually decided to hide the three paintings in a super secret spot that nobody knows. Oh, my God. Finally, on January 30th, 2017, he was tried and earned the nickname Spider-Man for his insane parkour heist. And to this day, the three paintings are still missing in that super secret spot. That's really interesting. Isn't it I crazy? honestly, like, have to admire him. I'm sorry. No, I valid <laughs> yeah like that was good yeah yeah i like that a lot that was really interesting yeah that was a crazy one so i think that wraps up the art heist that we're going to talk about yeah so I now really ev- now everyone knows yeah. how to commit an art heist yeah. or how to not some of them yeah some of them have been caught so don't you know don't pull a spider-man 
Yeah. Um, or do, but don't try and sell it. Yeah. Yeah, just keep it. Or <laughs> and make a different voicemail. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, so that was super interesting. I had a lot of fun with this one. Yeah, this was really fun. Do we have a topic for next week? I haven't decided. Okay. But well, next week is will be another mystery episode. Yeah. And I promised i would tell you what the spotify question is going to be I'm and so excited. the question is if you could steal any work of art i know what would it be and i want to hear your, your answer okay i have i love so many art yeah artworks so very much but i think i think you probably know wh- where i'm going because i have already bestowed it upon us that we're stealing this one and that is the winged victory of samothrace mm-hmm. because i have just I adore her. Mm-hmm. She is incredible. And she, I love her so much. She's in the, I know she's in the Columbus, Ohio State's library. The, a copy of her is. And I bother all my friends at Ohio State and I'm like, please, like, go see her and take a picture for mm-hmm. me because I love her so yeah. much. And I want to see her in real life and <laughs> I would like to see her in my bedroom. <laughs> so that's that. I think I'd have a whole list, to be honest. Oh, me of too. different works that I would steal. So I might come back on the Spotify Q&A and answer a different one. But right now, I am going to go with Klimt, The Kiss. Okay. Just because it's like... That's so valid. It's the coolest painting ever, and I just feel like stealing it would be like a huge deal. That's so valid. And it's so like... I don't know. I just... I feel like I could pull off like a really cool art heist with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's also this one artwork. Uh, it's like a ceramic... Guy, it's at the Cincinnati Art Museum, and he, he's like, there's this cat. He's naked, and there's this. He's like, I don't know. He just looks like a sweet guy, and he, there's this cat jumping off of him, and it's like, the, it's Aww, the coolest yeah. ceramic thing. I would steal that too. I thought about it. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah. Well. Thank you for listening. Yes, thank That's you for listening. That's all that we answer have. Answer our Q&A. Answer let our Q&A. Know. Answer our Q&A. I'm being so serious. You could also let us know how you would commit a heist. Yeah. Uh, give us the juicy details. Yeah, if, and if you learned anything from this episode. Then, yeah. Do it. Pull off a heist for us. Yeah, and we'll talk about pull it. Off, pull off a heist. Here's the new challenge. <laughs> pull off the heist. Tag it. Hashtag. <laughs> is this too niche heist? And tag us, and we'll share our favorites. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm kidding. Is this Tunis doesn't condone art heists? Yes, we do. Slash J. <laughs> Slash J. Anyways, thank you for listening. Thank you. We'll see you next week. The end. Peace out.